It's like what happens, you know, when we leave everyone else in those communities behind. We're not even thinking that if given the right opportunities, they could blossom there. I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broad Mike. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Be inspired. Take action. Think broad. Today on Broad Mike, I have Majora Carter, an urban revitalization strategy consultant real estate developer, and Peabody Award-winning broadcaster. She's also the founder of Startup Box, a social enterprise seeding diverse participation through entry-level jobs in the knowledge economy. Today, we're going to chat about the founding of Startup Box in New York City, how Majora is rolling out Startup Box in other cities, and managing other people's perception and opinions of you and your work. Welcome, Majora. Hey, nice to see you, Kelly. So let's, before we start about all of these things, um, you've been changing communities and an entrepreneur for some time. What was it? What was the impetus for you that made you say, all right, it's just not enough to have a job. I'm going to be an entrepreneur and make a difference. Well, it probably helped that I never really had a great job. I started off as an artist, which meant that, you know, you got work where you could. So it, was sort of, it wasn't quite... <laughs> Unglamorous, glamorous, artistic entrepreneurship, yes. Yeah, but um, what I realized was that I moved back to my community, the one that I struggled long and hard to leave, poor community of color, um, you know, urban ghetto, and... When I moved back there because I was broke and needed to live with my parents, you know, I found that there was things that I could do and be useful and valuable in doing. And so I got my start uh, doing urban revitalization, mostly in the sustainability world and uh, creating green-collar job training and placement systems and um, transforming dumps into parks and things of that nature. But what really moved me was understanding that the economic development or lack thereof of low-status communities really is what was keeping them down and not ever allowing them to fully participate in the economy as it exists you know, for much of America. And it just seemed like, well, that is the thing that we need to do. It is wealth creation. It is job creation. But it's also community development and showing that you can create the kind of communities that f- people feel as though they don't have to move in order to live in a better one. Doesn't always. I mean, just as soon as you said that, it's like doesn't it always frustrate when you think when people like they have to move to find an opportunity because it's not happening there well, at home. Poor communities or low status communities, as, as we call them, because whether it's an urban ghetto or whether it's a you know a former Rust Belt town that's all white or whether it's a Native American reservation, those are the communities that don't have the level of status that you know more established um, you know. Ecocent, you know, economic ecocenters of any particular area have. And so, but, you know, by design, they're the places that folks are taught to leave from a very early place. You know, they're the places, it was part of like that great Cinderella story. It's like, oh, they're from a hard scrabble neighborhood, but they, you know, despite all odds, grew up and became somebody great. But it's like what happens, you know, when we leave everyone else in those communities behind? You know, the great folks that could have been, you know, the next. 
Oprah or Bill Gates or whatever. We're not even thinking that if given the right opportunities, they could blossom there. And that's really what all my work has been about. Like, how do you show that, you know, with the right care, feeding, support, and just a a basic level of infrastructure, you can show that folks, you know, can be the economic generators of their own community, that they're the ones that can reinvest in it, that they're the ones can be the part of building it in a way that inspires and provides a sense of aspiration for others in that community. And of course, makes them taxpayers instead of tax uh, burdens. Well, and I was going to say on a national level, you know, we we need more economic centers and yes. more thriving economic centers yes. rather than fewer. So we need the Bronx to be successful. Yes. We need Detroit to be successful. Mm-hmm. New Orleans, you know, you could start rattling off all, you know, Pittsburgh, wherever yes. it is. Yep. We need them to be strong, right. you know. Uh, maybe this trend towards urbanization or re-urbanization is the case. Maybe this will help. Yes, and we think that it can, especially as we're, we're going toward that anyway. But how do we do that in a way that actually self-gentrifies those communities? versus just the, the sort of the standard uh, gentrification model that is just, you know, displaces, you know, the poor folks that were in a community until it gets like trendy. And then, you know, then other folks, usually younger, whiter, wealthier folks move in and then it's then it's suddenly a different place. Um, but we really think that we can reduce brain drain in those communities because by creating the kind of, of places that the folks that are, again, the, the smart, hardworking ones that are taught to leave those communities – you know, from a really early age, and I know I was one of them, where I was taught from, like, I was a little kid, said, you know what, you're going to grow up and you're going to be somebody, you're going to get out of here. Like, that kind of conditioning for the folks within low-status communities, it does something to you, and it's, it's, it is generally negative. I mean, whereas, like, the kind of support that I got to be, um, you know, to know that I was going to grow up and go to the Bronx High School of Science and then go to a great college, you know, that was great. It was great for me as an individual. But for the other kids who probably couldn't do that and didn't, obviously, um, you know, why there? it was an expectation that there was nothing really there that was left in that community that was going to mean anything for any of them and that they were going to grow up if they stayed there and they were going to stay poor. They were always going to be on the social welfare system. And, you know, they just weren't, you know, they might have make a living, but they were never really going to have a life that they really that fed them in any real way, spiritually, emotionally, or anything like that. And so, again, it's great for the individual, that kind of attitude, but it's, I think, overall not healthy for the folks that are left behind and certainly not healthy for the economy that we're allegedly trying to improve. Just sort of perpetuating, you know, a, a really sort of just negative circling of drain yes. cycle and need to change all of that. Yeah. So you've been labeled a social entrepreneur. What does social entrepreneurship mean to you? And is that the right <laughs> label? I, you know, I wish that I even knew what that term was back when I started this work in the in the mid-90s because you know, I started doing work, you know, again, working on the, you know, linking jobs in the environment and, you know, like looking at urban land use, you know, as a way to revitalize communities. And and there was always an economic development component in everything that I did. But, you know, I didn't know anything about what social about what social entrepreneurism is right now. And so I was just like, well, I guess I'm just a community I'm a community activist. And there's no shame in that game. But I tend to find that when people think of me, and they do think of me as a community activist, which is kind of like, you know, oh, you work within the community. And it's sort of a way to pigeonhole people 
frankly, much more so than anything else. It's kind of like, you know, that's the box you're in. You know, you're never really going to grow out of it, and and that's okay. And, you know, I have take issue with that yeah, <laughs> in yeah, a really yeah. big way. Um, and so, you know, especially since my work did focus on economic development, it was just like it's not just, you know, I'm not – I never, ever, ever put um, rhetoric over results. I'm much more interested in, in real um, – uh, ideas that can grow versus ideology, and those things don't necessarily define, um, you know, a community activist. When people start thinking about them, and frankly, I think on a bunch of levels, um, even community activists are okay with it, which is which is problematic to me. So, as a social entrepreneur, like I see the value in developing real enterprise in communities that actually allow it to develop in a more sustainable way. For the people that are there, and you know, and I'd like to make some money while I do it. So, and it's a, it oh, is now, ab- now you're talking crazy totally. stuff. <laughs> it is an absolute. It is a we. It's a very very market based approach to community development that I think is it's just it's rooted in my own infrastructure, and it's what I want to to how to build my life because I do think you can do well and do good at the same time, but you kind of have to pay attention to the market. You just, you do, and create public-private partnerships around it and, and show that, you know, cost avoidance in creating uh, real sustainable, healthy communities is actually a good thing. You know, I think the best form of social service is a job um, and how you, in developing the right types of infrastructure for the, the social, environmental, and economic health of, of, of our country is important. Well, I think so many things right now are, you know, as we like to, you know, overuse term disruption, but, you know, how we solve the world's problems needs to be disrupted. Absolutely. Just like business, established businesses are getting disrupted by technology, mm-hmm. how we solve community problems yes. needs to be disrupted by different ways of attacking that problem. Right. And simply saying an activist or 501c3 route or an NGO route, you know, we still have these problems. Yeah. I mean, this, it's what's interesting to me fascinating, as a matter of fact, that there's been more money over the past two decades, you know, that I've been in this world, um, you know, thrown at social problems, whether it's educational attainment, you know, health issues, um, poverty, um, more over these past 20 years than, than like, ever. <laughs> I mean, and yet in every single one of those, those, those problem areas, the issues have gone up. It's all gone up. And so, but we, the way that I look at it, so much of it, the money goes after literally doing the same thing over and over and over again. And it's just like, hasn't anybody seen that Einstein quote that's on like every other T-shirt? You know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Like it's on T-shirts now, guys. Like let's pay attention. But um, but yeah, I, I do find that mostly that's what happens. And I think especially in the most challenged communities, it's like the many of the folks that are putting money out there, you know, to fix the problems are literally trying to do the same thing over and over again. I think that's that Einstein quote was you just change it from from insanity to failure, because that to me is the definition of failure. Yeah. Doing the same thing, expecting different results. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah. let's talk <laughs> about your latest venture, Yay. Startup Box. Yay. I'm really like, <laughs> okay, we, we can skip the train ride when you were talking you and I talked about this three <laughs> three so three or so years ago uh-huh. how did this all start oh man honey it's it, it kelly things have been three years why have things grown um so when we first started thinking about 
the tech economy and how to ensure that low status communities could actually participate in it. You know, I think, you know, back in almost 2012, it was very much like, you know, we've got to we got to get to the kids like a lot of other folks were thinking, which is, you know, they're warm, they're cuddly, you know, they're not like huge problems just yet. And uh, and I think that was attractive to think, OK, we could teach them to code, you know, along with. But then guess what? Lots of other people were as well. And then. And they were much better funded than we were. So we were like, that's what's going to happen. That'll, I think that's taken care of. Um, but then the other thing was, wow, um, I we it's the they're the not so cute kids that we need to work on in some way. And and I thought, well, and we actually had been in conversation with some big companies that I will not name, um, who were just like, you know, they seem really progressive in nature and they were like, Well, maybe we can have one of our junior associates programs like operating in a place like the South Bronx. You know, we can bring people up there and it could we could do these internships, you know, kind of aspirational programming and it would be great. We were like, Awesome. And of course, you know, after a while they stopped returning phone calls because I think on some level it was like, well, you know, even though it's a quick ride, you know, up on the subway where we are, and people are always surprised how quickly you can get into Manhattan from where we are. It's still that's it's still the South Bronx. There wasn't good coffee, you know. It's like the perception of crime, you name it, and it was just like okay, fine. So that wasn't going to work, and that's when we were just like like we have to do kind of everything else and try to figure it out on our own, to be honest. And we were like, there's got to be some kind of pain point within the New York City tech economy right now that we can develop a business around that would allow you know, us to sort of get people trained up on the job, you know, fairly easily with a minimal viable training model that would allow us to then create a business to business, business, a B2B business for the folks within the New York City tech economy, but locate the operation in the South Bronx. And we actually had a place picked out before we even had the business, which was it was a storefront, you know, on a corner that actually had been a pretty hot corner, um, you know, for a while. It was like because it was pretty vacant, like all sorts of crazy activity would go on back there. And then it was just like, no, that's the corner because we can open it up and we want and good uses will drive out bad. And we knew it. So we actually had the the lease on it for a long time, even before we had the the idea, the, the model. But when we did more research, we realized that a lot of offshored like, that um, software developers who were using offshored um, quality assurance and other types of software services were not that happy with the services they were getting. Yeah, it was cheap, but sometimes you get what you pay for. And especially for the developers that were working on using um, uh, specifically like entertainment products. So whether it was uh, games or websites with lots of, of moving parts and just, you know, needed to be quality assured in, in a good way before their end user got to it or, you know, things like that. But again, because they were, it was their offshore options were time zones away and sometimes often didn't speak English. You know, the fact that there was the cultural vernacular wasn't there. So they would get their product back and it wasn't exactly what they needed and they didn't have to like do other work in it. So after hearing this complaint a lot, we realized, you know, maybe we can try to create a real value added model for quality assurance and other types of software services that New York City developers might want. You know, within the same time zone, cultural vernacular, maybe let's try this out. And so we did a couple pilots with uh, Nickelodeon and also with uh, um, a smaller mobile games company called Tresenza and literally gave away the product for free. And they loved it. 
And we were just like, well, we were able to train people up within a morning to do this work and, you know, created the kind of scripts that they needed and just were able to throw this product out to them. And our clients loved it. And then we were able, we realized, did a little more, a lot, excuse me, a lot more market research to see if we were on the right track. And then we launched in September of 2014. So, so who's your client? So our clients are, any, we've got game developers, we've got um, any you know, any website users that have like lots of moving parts on their website, so they could be as big as Sesame Workshop or as small as a company called Covey, you know, which is a, a, a website that's dedicated to, to young moms. So for you as, in many ways, you're a startup with Startup Box. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, we have, how did, how did you make it happen? Oh, God. Um... It you know listen it was clearly a labor of love that almost uh, sent my husband and I you know into the poorhouse for a little while um, because we really did think because we thought gosh we're urban onshoring jobs I mean it's you know is it like we are really sitting on something that's super super smart and we really did think because we set it up originally is as workforce development and we thought that the philanthropic world was going to be like awesome. Of course, we're going to support you in this like this demonstration phase. And they really didn't at first. I mean, just did not. I mean, for it's, thank goodness, um, J.P. Morgan Chase is the workforce development uh, program really understood what we were doing. But that meant Booth Ferris and not too many others. And so it but we were so deep into it that it was my after tax dollars from the, uh, uh, you know, from my consulting company that funded this stuff to begin with. And again, we were so deep into it and could literally see, like, you know, we can't leave now. Um, But there was a time when it was like, oh, my gosh, like, this is what we're spending the bulk of our money on, you know, making sure that it works and working out the kinks so that it will succeed. And there was nobody, whether not not on the investment side, not on the philanthropic side. It was just like, let's just watch Majora, see what she can do. I mean, I was like, it was it was very difficult. And it's not the first time in my career I've well, been through that. And, that. and that's the point. A lot of the time they want to see entrepreneurs with, with track records. And it's yeah. like, hey, if my friend here doesn't have a track record, I don't know who has it. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I think sometimes when you're breaking this new ground, oh. you know, people like, well, let's see what she does. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And then they will general and this happened to me also when I was in the sustainability world. You know, like I did raise the bar for what was the green economy, but I never really benefited at all from all this this plethora of funding that came down the pipes after I did it. Like <laughs> it was just like great. So like you're funding who now? Oh, uh, hello. We were doing this like three years before Homie got into the game, but it was. And so at this point in my life, I'm really being a lot more aggressive about just reminding people of who I am. And because I have no choice. I mean, seriously. I mean, we have to we have to play it in a weird kind of way because there are like some serious issues that, you know, are sort of stacking up, you know, not in our favor. I mean, you know, being a, a black female tech founder is doesn't really I mean, if you look at the stats about it, I'm really of course nobody's funding me. Duh. I mean, that's just those are just the stats. Um, dear friend, ours, Catherine Finney, you know, yes. did the Project Diane report, you know, which was just abysmal. I mean, it was one of the saddest things I've ever read. That show. Oh, statistically, you don't get you don't get funded. Yeah. It's so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I was like, yeah. oh yeah, I'm in the you know out of all the gajillions of women who, the black women and the women of color who just got 
pretty much nothing like that. That was me. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can vouch for that. Um, you know, what was it? Twelve, you know, out of all the was it one point five million? Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Statistically, it's like less than one percent of VC funding has gone to, um, you know, black women. Yeah. And it's like, really? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You know, because yeah. you can't tell me the sisters don't have great ideas. I know. Like, what I know. are we looking at? I know. Are we so narrow in our focus? Yeah. Yes, I think we are. And what problems aren't we solving? Right. Because we can't see the founder. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's just like, what are we leaving, you know, on the table as opposed to figuring out, like, how do we create even more? So I'm, I've never been the type of person, you know, I think this is probably one of the reasons why I didn't do well in the in the, in the the social justice industrial complex. Like, I was never a person to fight over crumbs. I'm like, okay, you know what? I know there's ingredients out there to make a whole cake. Why are we fighting over this crab? And uh, so that's what I find so fascinating, you know, about the future of this world, especially especially as it becomes more diverse, just like there are markets that we don't even know exist. Of course, you're going to need to figure out, like, how do we access them? Which means, guess what? It's got to look like the people who we're going to be marketing to eventually. So I kind of think we need to figure this stuff out, like, you know, because we kind of have to. So just for fun. <laughs> oh, you know, you and I could go on for hours on this, but I want to get back to Startup Box. Yeah. So how'd you get your pilot partner, Nickelodeon? How'd that come um, to be? We actually had an advisor who was there. He was, the, at the time, the head of games development and was just like, this problem keeps happening. You know, we we create, do, we do a lot of our own content, but we also, you know, hire developers to make our content. And where it gets messed up is when they needed quality assured because they're using these offshore adoption. And, you know, often that doesn't work. And here's why. And so when we dug deeper, we realized that is so true across the industry. And especially, again, with any kind of entertainment industry. So they were the first ones that opened their doors to let us actually try this model out. And because Lord knows it couldn't be worse than what they were already getting. Exactly. Like, like what, what, exactly. what is the bar for failure? It's already failing. It's really – exactly. And so they knew that. And so so the, we were really excited and grateful to him for letting us do that. And then we, of course, we did a lot more work after that. But the fun thing was that, you know, after we launched it and we came up with this model where we give away, you know, a two, two-week free trial to everybody that just talks to us. And, you know, our, our conversion rate is 80%. So, you know, we do give it away because, again, it's still kind of weird. It's sort of like, oh, I'm sort of used to, you know, it's like the devil you know, which is we do this offshore stuff and we're not really sure if you're going to be able to do this. So that's why we're like, look, give us the free. Give, we'll give you the free trial. You, listen, you can be paying for those guys you've got over totally. wherever it we'll, is. We'll do the same work precisely. for two weeks for free. Exactly. And generally they come back. So, but again, it's in a very elastic model, so they're not always with us all the time. But you know, it's pretty consistent work. So we've got about a dozen clients right now. We are actively looking um, for investment to support the develop our business development person because we don't have one right now, and uh, and that I think has been that has been problematic because we just haven't we we can keep the lights on. I think we'll be in the black by the end of this year, which is kind of cool. Um, but and so we've done we're good on the enterprise part of our business, but we know we can be a whole lot better um, if given an opportunity and, and a, real, a real sales team to work with us or a salesperson dedicated to doing nothing except getting us this work. Um, and is it just in terms of the um, the workforce mm-hmm. training part, is it right. just quality assurance or is that evolved? Oh, that's totally evolved already. Um, we've noticed that, um, you know, as we were, especially for some of our, our gaming clients, um, so Two Dots is, is one of our, our clients. So we did the quality assurance for their Android launch release for, the, for Two Dots, which has like more than 40 million users right now. 
crazy. Total crazy. And uh, but when they went back and they tried to write their own scripts, you know, to do you know, do a customer care for their offshore company, and then they were like, "This is just this is too hard for us to do because we can't." Like, why don't we just hand it over to to you guys to Startup Box and handle our customer care? So we actually handle a hundred percent of of dots of two dots customer care right now. Oh no, if it was, if it was dots customer care, yeah. I would apply because I would just be sitting there eating the dots. <laughs> uh, we're talking two dots. All right. <laughs> I know, but it's people people still love dots as well, so we handle that too. But um, it's really fun. So we're just really excited about that, and so we're going to be continue to work with them in the future as well. So it's that's what we handle. And so we're real excited. And as they continue to do different launches of the games, you know, different updates, you know, hopefully we'll be on that as well. That's amazing. And then we're also looking, because we, we really haven't, just, thanks for asking that question, because we, ha- we haven't really scratched the surface of what else we can provide to, um, you know, to our uh our clients right now, you know, things like data cleansing, you know, recruitment, um, you know, actually doing the technical writing on, on some of their other scripts. I mean, this we realize we've got so much more that we can offer and we're investigating that right now. Well, and as your workforce gets really like more and more excited yeah. I mean, about the, the things they're working yeah. on and what they're learning and who they know who could be a good person to come and do yep. this too. It's just like... You just feel the energy. Yes, it's so yeah. beautiful. It's a it's a beautiful place. So scaling, what's yeah. next? So we definitely want to continue to grow here in New York. Um, that's why we're looking for uh, investment for a business developer and to just make sure that we can like get this puppy to sing because I know we can. Um, but the other thing is what we've actually gotten the interest of different cities around the country as well. Um, so places like Minneapolis um, or um, Austin, Texas, you know, places that have just like pretty much, you know, every city, they've got a thriving tech sector, but then there is a low status community right, right. nearby. And, you know, everybody's talking about, you know, diversifying the tech ecosystem, but have no idea like how to do it. And so we've gotten the attention of some folks within city government and also within some of the, the, the private businesses in those places and other places around the country as well that are just like, this is the kind of business that we think makes sense here. And, you know, so we're looking to get them to scale up with us uh, so that we could take, you know, our, you know, almost two years worth of market research that we've put into this model in terms of how do you, you know, locate your clients? How do you um, recruit your talent? How do you, you know, set up shops so that it becomes a real, um, you know, economic beacon within a local community, you know, versus it's like, you know, setting up another training program that, you know, people are never going to be apply to anyway or get hired out of as well. Um, so they're really, we're so excited about that. So each one of those cities, in addition to the other ones, you know, it looks like about 1.2 million to get us off the ground wherever we are. But we think that it's it's actually a good price for um, the type of public-private partnership that will make it happen. So we're very excited. So definitely want to keep you posted on that. Oh, yeah. I, oh, fingers, I have fingers crossed. No, it is going to happen. In you know, off off camera, we're gonna we're gonna talk about some things on that because well, the wheel the wheels are turning. Yeah, we have touched on this a little bit with respect to you and your husband putting everything on the line. But yeah. what other risks were involved? Because you know, there's. A lot of, you know, you're doing something really innovative. There's yeah. a lot of feathers that you can ruffle yeah. doing business in a different way. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, the, the biggest one was the financial piece because, you know, again, if we if we were wrong, which we weren't because we did the market research, <laughs> um, you know, it would have been disastrous you know, for us. But, uh, you know, we did the work and we made it work so that it was really exciting. But, you know, 
the, I, part of the problem is just dealing with incredibly low expectations that folks have of low status communities and what happens there. And also, you know, even of me, you know, and I've, you know, look, I want to make Arthur for urban revitalization strategies. Like I've, I do have a track record as long as my arm. and uh, Longer, I, I guess. <laughs> but it's still just like, you know, who do you think you are to try this? And it it has been really, really difficult at times. Just like on a, not so much emotionally because, it, you know, it, look, I've been a black female doing crazy stuff like this, you know, for a long time. But it is, it, 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 it can be draining, you know, to keep doing it. But, and just go, okay, here's another day. Uh, like who else is going to be insulting? <laughs> and then you just have to get up and do it again. You just do. Um, but, you know, part of it for me is in, and this is having spent time in Detroit recently, mm. you know, in terms of communities where I actually, I want to invest, are these communities where I want to say there's a no plan B? Yeah. They know that if they in the community don't make it work, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen. And if they don't decide to, like, you know, put in the time and the effort and, and throw everything that they've got at it, it's not going to happen. And, like, you know, no offense to, you know, Manhattan where I live and love and all the rest of it, but, you know, that's we always have a plan B in Manhattan. Yeah. Communities without the plan B, now that's the place to pay attention yeah. and invest. Yeah, I, yeah. I I guess I'm a plan B, or maybe I'm a plan A. I don't know what. You're, I am. You've only got one plan. You, yeah. You've got to make this. And, and for being and for being in in you know the South Bronx, you just like here. We need to make this happen yeah. because we've been sitting here for how long, waiting for the knight in shining armor oh, to come in. Mm-hmm. Not it's happening. Crazy pants. Um, just we you know speaking of like how you because again if our overarching goal is to increase economic diversity and reduce brain drain, then we have to create a community that the people who would otherwise ex- be expected to leave would want to stay. You have to build things in it for them. So whether it's companies that folks want to work at or um, or it's coffee shops that people want to go to, like we actually had to build a coffee shop which is opening in two weeks, which is very exciting, on uh, April 19th. And we're so excited about it. But we found a partner, uh, Birch Coffee, which is a local, you know, they've got seven coffee shops in Manhattan right now. Weren't really planning on coming to the Bronx. But we got a space and did the initial work so that it would it would be attractive to someone who actually didn't know how to do coffee because we didn't know how to do coffee. But we knew just from listening to the community that they wanted things like this. Like there is no gathering place that's that's not a topless bar, you know, in the industrial section. So we want places that look nice and make us feel special. And, you know, if it means, you know, spending more on a cup of coffee because we know people leave the neighborhood to experience these things, we were going to do this. And it's the the response has been overwhelmingly pos- positive. I mean, people are like aching for this coffee shop to open. And, you know, and it may sound like a silly little thing, but it's – it's like, you know, with all the problems you have, like, in the neighborhood, why are you building a coffee shop? It's because people want to feel like they've, there's something worth living for in our community. And coffee places like that are the things that remind people that all isn't terrible and that maybe they could have a positive outlook, you know, about their community when they see things like this. It's another anchor in the community. So it's – um. so I get some heat, you know, from folks about – gentrifying my own my own neighborhood, which is the most retarded thing I've ever heard. But um, I'm just like, you. And, you know, you know, for, <laughs> you know what? You know what? Uh, 
As a prior guest said, in terms of her best advice, her stepfather had said, you know, there's there's going to be people who all they do is pull you off the ladder because it's easier to do that than climb a ladder. Amen. And, and, you know, I just think when you're climbing the ladder, there's just going to be a whole lot of people who just want to toss you down yep. for whatever reason. They're going to find, you know, it's going to be the color of your sweater or the coffee shop yep. you're opening. So. Yep. Hate is going to hate. That exactly. Um, All right. So we're going to get the fun part. Not that the rest of this wasn't fun, but you're going to get the fun part that every guest has. I'm going to ask you some questions. These are pay it forward questions. Mm. It's going to be your fast answers. Sure. What are your primary sources of information? Public radio, little tiny bit of Twitter. How do you discover new information? Someone tells me something interesting and I look it up. What book are you reading? Eat the Frog. It's about how to not procrastinate. Is it inspiration for your new book? Actually, that's why I started reading it, because I was procrastinating so much. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Do you have any rituals or habits you swear by? Yes. Uh, rituals or habits to swear by. Exercise every single day. Every day. Uh, meditate every single day. Um, try to talk to somebody I love that's not part of my work every day. Uh, try to. That's unfortunately doesn't always happen. I pray like those. And pray. You know, seriously, that's those are my rituals. I, I love it. What entrepreneurs or leaders do you follow and admire? Mm, gosh, uh, Beyonce. Beyonce, Beyonce. <laughs> I was going to say, and if Beyonce, if you're listening to this, you should be part of Startup Box. I'm just going to put that out there. I just, I, oh my gosh, it's just, you know. And you know what? And she, as she's come into her power. Yes. Even more magnificent. Yeah. I mean, I've just been thinking about her so often. It's, yeah. I mean, there's, there's others. Let's manifest her as an investor. Exactly. What is the best advice you've ever received? Not now doesn't mean not ever. And the second one was be aware of who your friends aren't. Ooh, that's a really good one. Yeah. Sir, we've, we've been busting a few myths, but are there any other myths you would like to dispel for our listeners? I'm not a community activist. I am an entrepreneur. What words of advice would you give to listeners about taking risks mm. and closing the confidence gap? Mm. Remember, it's a performance. Oh, and we all can give a good Academy Award Mm -hmm. performance. And what does think broad mean to you? Think broad. Oh, gosh, I love that question. Uh, Think broad means to me, number one, think like a broad. (laughs) Because I'm like, you know, I I never really thought of myself as a lady, um, even though I I have to be at times. Um, And broad it's one of those like tough chick names that just cracks me up when I hear it. But you, it just—it's an image of a woman who just takes no, no mess from anybody. And I just—I love that. Love, love, love that. Thank you so very much. Pleasure mine. It was awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Broad Mike. We welcome your feedback. Find us on Facebook where you will have show notes and additional references for a deeper dive into today's topic. Subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover Broadmic 
and grow the Broadmic community. Broadmic is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think broad.